if we're actually going to prevent the, the worst effects of climate change, we need to understand how all companies in the world are performing in terms of not just their corporations, but supply chain as well. We need to know where investors are investing. Are they investing in things that are inadvertently creating more negative effects of climate change? We have a ton of data in the world, way more data than people see. It's just that it's not comparable data. So until we actually understand and work on how are we reporting on different factors, is that adding transparency to our operations from a corporate and investor and regulator standpoint? And if not, how do we fix that quickly? Hello everyone, my name is Julie Masters and welcome to another episode of Inside Influence, in which I delve into the minds of some of the world's most fascinating influencers or experts in influence, or in the case of today, people who live within a world of influence that we rarely get to take a peek inside of, in order to get to the bottom of what it really takes to own your voice and then amplify it to drive an industry, a conversation, a movement or a nation. Now, I want you to imagine the most complex challenge on your horizon at the moment. Just close your eyes for a second and just imagine it. It could be global, it could be one within your network, your organization, maybe even your family. But here's the question. Did it arrive with a roadmap? Did it land on your doorstep with a simple route in order to get you from A to B? Or even just some guideposts around exactly where to start tackling it? I'm guessing the answer is no, because let's face it, The more complex or high stakes the issue that we're trying to solve, the more complicated the solution usually becomes. So why? Why is that? Well, because inevitably it involves more stakeholders and more collaborations to cross the finish line, which means successfully navigating a whole series of competing agendas, which is always fun, not to mention getting the attention of those who usually, if they're in large enough positions of power, do not hand it over very easily. And then... And then, once you've herded the right big cats into the room, to use the language of my next guest, you need to become fluent enough in their language to be able to translate the problem and the opportunity in such a way that they are willing to commit to a solution. And not just commit for that day, you know, while it's easy, but for the long term. Get it wrong at any of those points and the process falls down. Do not pass go, do not collect $200, do not solve the problem. Still up for it? I hope so. From the outset, my guest today is in the business of harnessing big money, specifically harnessing how that money is spent and invested in new ways, in new ways that create solutions to some of the world's most complex problems. As head of sustainable and impact investing for the World Economic Forum, Catherine Brown describes her day job as transforming complexity into concrete action and navigating ambiguity to find shared value. A far cry from where her journey began, killing time in the cloakroom of a pizzeria reading investment books, which will be more on that later. For anyone who feels like they're starting at zero, starting from the very beginnings, her journey is one that you want to know about. Catherine's role at the WEF essentially involves challenging traditional models of financial investment, including how we leverage emerging digital technology as well, usually with one outcome in mind that the returns and success of these investments aren't just measured in dollars, but also in social and environmental outcomes. She spends her day posing one of my favorite questions at the highest level, which is, what if we could choose both? 
In today's conversation, Catherine and I cover a lot of territory, including the art of getting the right people in the room at the right time and curating a constructive conversation. Highlight that word, constructive. The significance of building a lighthouse or an easily identifiable target when it comes to engaging those stakeholders. And here's a tip, that term, building a lighthouse, applies the same whether you are trying to get global change makers in the room or if you're presenting your latest idea to three people in your organization. Identifying and highlighting a lighthouse. Flipping the story we tell as change makers. This one's huge. From risk to opportunity. How do we stop telling risk stories and start telling opportunity stories? Because risk will always get our attention, but only opportunity will keep us committed to a solution in the long term. The pivotal role investors and big business has to play in solving some of our world's largest problems. Again, that is more of an opportunity than I think that we know we have at our hands. Why to be successful, you have to be willing to go there. And we'll talk more about where there is at the later parts of the conversation. And why the velocity, scope and systems of the fourth industrial revolution has the potential to solve some of the greatest challenges of our time, if we can leverage it. Now, anyone that's in the business of behavior change, and I would say we all are to some degree, particularly where the stakes are very high, will tell you that collaboration at any level can be frustrating. And that's before you get to global issues such as the 17 million people that are forcibly displaced globally every year from war zones and trillions of potential dollars in aid investment that could help some of those issues. Getting positive action in place is complex, it is messy. And yet, on the 20th of September, just just seven days ago as I record this, 16-year-old climate change activist Greta Thunberg called for one of the largest climate change action strikes the world has ever seen. Four million, four million students and workers mobilised across the world in a mass climate protest that could well change the course of history. Almost exactly one year before that, in August 2018, at 15 years of age, Greta had sat alone, striking outside her native Swedish parliament. Now I I guarantee you, no one gave her a roadmap to get between those two points in time, or permission to start for that matter. So it is possible. And you know the best place to start? Listening to those who are getting it done. So with that in mind, sit back, strap in, buckle up, and enjoy my conversation with the seismic force that is Catherine Brown. Welcome to the podcast, Catherine Brown. Thank you, Julie. You're welcome. I wanted to I wanted to kick straight into this straight into this conversation and there's a question that I always ask at the beginning of every podcast and it is do you consider yourself to be an introvert or an extrovert and the reason that I that I ask this question and you know you and I just had an, a very interesting conversation off air always off air about influence and what we think it is versus what it actually is and I find that there's a story and a myth out there especially in my world, that in order to be influential, you need to be an extrovert. You know, it involves volume and charisma. And and I haven't always found that to be the case. In fact, I've usually found it to live somewhere in the middle. And so I'm curious, would you consider yourself introverted or extroverted? 
Is being an omnivert an option? Being an omnivert is very much and has been the answer a lot of times. A few times, has it? Oh, darn, I thought that was great. Uh, as my mind was firing, thinking, well, uh, definitely a contradiction in the sense that I think you ride the line or one rides the line a lot more than they probably think. I certainly ride the line between introvert and extrovert. And it really depends on environment, uh, social saturation level and all that. I can definitely say before I started working in, in my organization, I would probably demonstrated far more extroverted tendencies. The, the openness and ability to communicate with people. I think that was part and parcel of kind of my early career, but actually uh, this role that I'm in and this organization I'm in has fully brought out my, my latent introvert. Um, most definitely, I would say probably orbiting around high powered type A's with ninja level social skills all the time kind of brings out the healthy introvert in anyone. Um, but also in my experience anyway, I think the more you started to feel the weight of the world on your shoulders, the more introverted you become because the more you realize you do not have the answers to everything all the time. And the more you actually seek thoughtful time <laughs> away from people, at least it's been my experience. So I probably, there are definitely times most of my friends and, and colleagues would say, um, I, I look like an extrovert majority of the time, but I am most definitely a healthy introvert. And you're also in your in your daily work, which we'll, we'll get onto in a second, would require a lot of listening. Like as you said, you know, to go to the place of I don't, I don't have all the answers. In fact, I'm not even a hundred percent sure what the question is yet. And to go to that place just involves a world of listening. Oh, you would not believe, Julie. It's um, it's actually it's a really interesting point. When I started getting involved in this world of multi-stakeholder uh, action and collective action and what have you, I made the classic mistake that everybody makes uh, at the very, very beginning, which is I'm just going to come in there and, and with my, uh, I wouldn't say activism, I wouldn't even call myself an activist, to be honest, but I, I have thoughts and opinions, I observe things, and I'm going to share those uh, with people and, and bounce them off people and see what comes back. But then you you do realize that you just do an awful lot of talking in that case and people will look at you and smile and nod their head and they'll, you'll get involved in really interesting conversations but you're not really going to get the truth unless you just stop and listen so it took a little bit of a pivot to realize the more you listen the more you learn and the more you can actually do i'm just gonna, gonna stick with that just for one more question do you find and this is more just a, a reflection do you find that the most influential thing you can do in that type of a conversation that takes a lot of listening is try and figure out what the core question is that's driving that other individual. You know, what is, what is their core question? Exactly. Core question, core bottleneck, the, the underlying assumption that that person or that group or that organization is operating under, because it's just so it's all, it's rarely on the surface. Right. And we take so many things for granted in, in debates and conversations and say, well, this must be the core question or this must be the core assumption that we're operating under. Um, again, in my experience, it's almost never what's on the surface that's actually driving actions or agendas or anything like this. So you really have to do quite a bit of bobbing and weaving and scratching, listening, um, sort of very focused strategic questions 
to try to unearth what is that really core fundamental assumption. And then from that point, you have a foundation you can work with. Do you have a favorite question? I'm just thinking as you're talking, you know, when you've done this for long enough, you tend to have a favorite go-to question that at least opens the door. I would say favorite question. You have to you have to kind of go through a full arsenal of questions, to be honest, to really sort of get at what you're going for. But I would say probably the most common question, and it's probably not that exciting or interesting, is asking people what really drives them deep down. Like, why do you why do you get up in the morning? Somebody told me, and I'm going to almost blasphemously not give them credit because I can't remember who on earth said it, um, but whoever you are out there who said it, I think this is brilliant, um, that, you know, positive, you know, positive impact or, or driving towards uh, creating a better world, better people, better planet and all that. Um, it's sort of what keeps us up at night at least the challenges are what keep us up at night, but actually it's what gets you out of bed in the morning that, that drives you and sort of trying to get into that, like what actually gets you up in the morning, not necessarily first thoughts, but why do you get out of bed? Why do you go to do what you do? And then if you really hone in on that, some people will pause for quite a long period of time actually and say, oh gosh, I haven't thought about it that way. But then you get some really interesting information and it tends not to be too fake. But again, it's, you know, it's part of an arsenal of questions <laughs> that you would ask. So if you're not getting where you want there, you think, okay, let's try another angle. <laughs> I wanted to, other than, than that question, I wanted to actually kick this interview off with something that I read about you, which was that you, one of your, one of your first jobs was working in a pizzeria, a pizzeria called Otto, where you worked at the, at the coat check counter. And this is what's in, interesting about that story is that you entertained yourself by reading investment books. And that just blew my mind because I've worked in, at a lot of counters at restaurants and bars, and I can't say that I ever read any investment books, which suggests to me that something or someone piqued your interest there, got you, got you excited about the topic really early. Do you remember what that was or who that was? Oh, that is a very good question. First of all, saying that I was reading investment books while working in Coat Check in a pizzeria makes me sound incredibly <laughs> hilarious. Um, so, so I guess maybe to put some little more color around the story. So the this you know quote unquote pizzeria is actually a restaurant in New York, yeah, called Otto, which is a bit of a sort of a high end pizzeria, or at least very frequented by um, I would say a lot of the finance community, uh, sort of arts community in New York. It was kind of a kind of a flashy place to be back in the day, and uh, for me, I mean, I'd met the owners and said, "Hey, this, this sounds like a this is a great place. I'd love to to work here for a little while whilst I figure out what I'm going to do when I grow up." Exact words out of my mouth. You know, I just finished university. I had one. I was going to go into the art world, and you know, worked at Christie's auction house, and I was going to go into this world. And I thought to myself, "Well, actually, that's not compelling. I'm not compelled by this somehow." Um, so then I sort of took a pause to try to figure out what is it that I really want to do in the world. So I ended up at this pizza place, this pizzeria, um, where there was, you know, part-time, we all did, everybody in the restaurant used to work in the coat check, you know, just to, sort of, to do our fair share. But that was the time, the only time, basically, in my young 20s, when I had time to really read and think. And it was actually a really peaceful moment. Nobody ever, I mean, if and when you ever give your coat to a coat check person, um, 
you know, realize that they're probably very happy <laughs> to be sitting in there and actually having moments of thought. But I think that there were a lot of people within the finance industry that were coming in all the time. My parents were uh, some of the divergent pieces of the story. My parents were um, both Peace Corps people. They met in the Peace Corps. We've always had sort of this sort of what can you do for society bend in the family. Um, sometimes dominant, sometimes more sort of under under the surface, but it's sort of always been there. And then when all these finance people would come in, they would hear their conversations, they'd be talking about what was happening in the markets. And this was pre, you know, 2008 financial crisis. So things were usually pretty good, pretty booming. And, but I really wanted to understand, well, how does, how does this, this investment world, how does it work? How does it tick? Because everyone seems to be really quite chuffed about it. Uh, it's, it's providing a lot of people with resources at the time, to put it mildly. Um, but it's also providing people with a lot of purpose in a sense. They're coming in like really quite happy about this, but I'm trying to, I fail to see how, how it actually works and operates. Um, so I basically just sat in Kocheck a couple times a week with my, you know, investment for dummies and tried to understand, okay, so what is, is this as difficult as it sounds? Is it, is it potentially actually quite simple and just wrapped in very, you know, complex sentence structures or ideas. And that was just, that was sort of the motivation behind it is all these people are coming in and, and looking quite delighted, but me not really understanding why. And where did you, I want to say, where did you go from there? But I'm assuming it was a, it was a big journey from there to where you are today. Yeah. <laughs> What's, um, let, let's make it smaller. What was the first, so you're in, you come out of the coat check. What's the first thing? That you did in order to get into that world? Interestingly, I did absolutely nothing to get into that world right away. My first port of call after that was much more on the engagement side of things, less on the finance side. So I ended up meeting, uh, again, through the, the company I was working with, a whole event production team that lured me to come in and work for a couple of years, essentially what was event production. So we worked with, again, large-scale finance clients and uh, private individuals, never did weddings. I should always caveat that. I never did weddings at all. But working with anywhere from, you know, 50, 60-person productions all the way up to, um, I think, the MacArthur Awards, for example, which were multi-thousands of people uh, coming in again for some kind of a social brand. That's actually where I really discovered that you could actually layer social an environmental impact on top of things like engagement with people, right? So it was much more, I mean, I have a very, in some cases, I shouldn't even say it was probably live, but anal retentive uh, operational skill set sometimes. So event management and event production kind of came naturally. Um, but it was, to me, what fascinated me was actually how you get people working together. When you bring people together, what can you actually accomplish? So I went totally in that direction initially and launched my own production company, my own consultancy after that period, but then got drawn back into the finance and investment side, which took me to business school. So it was a bit of a loop-de-loop, -loop, if you will, a round-trip tour <laughs> to come back to finance and investment. So let's, let's, fast forward, let's fast forward to today. So you're now, you know, you're now head of sustainable and impact investing at the World Economic Forum. Mm -hmm. It's just, I think it's a good idea to start with a working definition of um, 
of, let's just start with a working definition of impact investing. How would you how would you describe that in its at a ground level, practical level? So I think for us and for me, it's fairly clear the definition. Although you'd be surprised, there are a number of definitions still floating around uh, onto what impact and impact investing means. It's ultimately sort of in its purest form to me. It means that you are investing intentionally uh, to create a positive social and environmental impact alongside a financial return and that you in, intend to to measure that impact in some way. So I think, the, again, it's sort of three key pieces to the definition, one being the intentionality. It's not something that you realize after the fact, after the investment and say, hey, look at that, I just happened to, to create you know, this tremendous environmental and or social impact and I didn't even think about it. It's very intentional. Um, you are, in fact, seeking financial return on top of social and environmental. So it is not a purely concessionary approach like philanthropy would be, for example. Um, and then the key tenet, and this is where there tends to be some disagreement in the world around definition, is that you do intend to show this somehow through uh, some some measurement framework, some measurement process, uh, so that it's not just for the sake of trying to create impact, but you're trying to show the delta of what it would have been like if you hadn't made that investment versus actually making that investment and, and doing a positive impact there. Can you give me an, a specific example of what of what that could look like? So a situation or a, a problem or a project that that would bring that to life. So, so one of the areas that we work in now, um, which is sort of quite new in in some respects, or at least the involvement of private sectors is quite new, is this thing we call humanitarian investing. And that's finding investments, again, on the margins of the humanitarian journey, or at least the, the journey of displaced peoples, where there is an opportunity for private capital to, to actually invest in creating more thriving livelihoods on the front end, for example, and or reintegration on the back end of, of a displacement um, situation. And so an example of, of an impact investment in that context could be, for example, um, for, for private capital, investing in, uh, let's say, energy. I mean, this is a pure, very pure example here on this one, but investing in uh, either solar panels or wind energy or something that brings consistent energy to a context where displaced people are living and operating and to actually be able to give them, or at least to, to create something more of a, a market around them to be able to then work, live, do whatever. I mean, you're, you're investing as an investor, you're investing in solar panels or, or wind. There's always an incremental uh, sort of financial benefit to selling each of them to one of those. You're not selling them to the actual displaced peoples, you're selling them to local governments, local communities, those that have the ability to pay for it. But you, in doing that, you are intentionally trying to bring, let's say work opportunities to, let's say refugee camps or migrant, uh, migrant communities to actually provide then the opportunity to work. You're getting the financial return because at the end of the day, you're, you're selling renewable energy sources to people who can't afford to pay for it. Um, but then ultimately you can measure from that, are these communities starting to work more readily? Are there opportunities for employment that didn't exist before uh, actually putting in those energy sources? Funnily enough, I read an article that you wrote about humanitarian investing and and what struck me about it, there was some language that you used, you know, it's turning ordeal into opportunity. 
Mm-hmm. And it's funny because while you're talking, you know, it, it sounds like a good thing to do. You know, it sounds like the right thing to do. It sounds like something you would do to make yourself feel like you were doing something mm-hmm. from a positive impact point of view. But what you've, what you're doing there essentially in terms of getting the right people on board is you're flipping that, that mind space from, from risk to opportunity mm-hmm. where Usually we would view, I mean, the United Nations High Commission, um, High Commissioner for Refugees estimated 70 million people are forcibly displaced globally. Mm-hmm. Um, some information that I found out, that sounds like something that people would view poorly. You know, they're coming, mm-hmm. they may take jobs, take resources, take, take space. That would usually be framed within a risk. Yeah. But you're taking it out of that risk box and and reframing the language into actually that's a massive opportunity and that's a massive opportunity that if you put capital there could mm-hmm. solve a number of problems simultaneously while also generating a return yeah i mean exactly and i cannot even begin to tell you sort of the, the how mired in political debate this this whole topic is at the moment and, and i understand why i mean humans have natural reactions to things natural emotions Uh, Fear is still the number one guiding emotion, uh, especially when it comes to uh, movement of people, right, Uh, in in many, many ways. So we have scarcity. Scarcity, exactly. And I I don't want to downplay the importance of that and the downplay um, the importance of human emotion and and invalidate a lot of that, you know, those fears out there. But the reality is, especially from the perspective of, you know, private sector, private capital, um, and you have to be very careful when you talk about this. This is this is has to be based on ethical principles, right? That you even have this conversation. We're talking about human lives, human people. Um, it cannot be taken lightly. But quite frankly, uh, the fact that this narrative hasn't been flipped to date uh, is sort of surprising to me because when you talk to communities um, who have been displaced uh, and who are trying to find their way again. You've never seen such a motivated and uh, passionate <laughs> group of people than those who want to find their identities again. Um, who've, who've, I mean, and most people can't conceive of this idea of being forcibly displaced. Um, it's something that happens to, like you said, I mean, to a huge number of the world's population. And quite frankly, what I tell our investors all the time is, if you think this is bad in terms of human population movements, just wait for 10, 20, 30, 50, 100 years, because this is, we're just at the beginning of what is going to be large scale displacement in the world, especially if we don't start taking better care of our, of our planet. So when you start to actually underpin the necessity of it, that this is actually not optional, and that's the point I make to our constituents all the time, is guys, this, this is not an optional uh, situation to look at. We do have forced displacement. It's going to get bigger. There is actually opportunity to be harnessed here. This is anybody who's been forcibly displaced, who had an identity, who had a way of life, is really desperately looking to find that way of life again. And these are the best investments you can make in people, is trying to find a way to actually get them back online again. Um, but then even to force, uh, to, to prevent, I mean, displacement is what happens when we failed, to put it blatantly, right? Displacement is what happens when we failed in some way or another. Either we failed to take care of the planet or we failed to take care of people, thriving livelihoods, uh, uh, you know, 
countries, regions, what have you, we, we failed in some way. So looking at that as also an investment opportunity to say, how can I actually provide a thriving livelihood to prevent displacement to begin with? Those are the two margins. When I say the margins, I'm saying, you know, front end, back end, because the actual crisis in the middle, this is an area, an opportunity we, we, we're not releasing the work that we're doing, saying that this is where private capital should go. That's where there's the most fragility. Uh, quite frankly, that's where ODA uh, capital really, really takes uh, sort of lent the lion's share, if you will. That's where a lot of humanitarian and development organizations live and should live. That's really their, their sweet spot. But really on the margins, there is an opportunity to flip that narrative to say, look, guys, this is not optional. There are, there are ways that we can make this a lot easier for people. It's interesting because you see that, that kind of mental roadblock come up, especially in the not-for-profit space. You know, in order mm-hmm. to do good things in the world, you, you there should be nothing in it for you. You know, there should be, mm-hmm. there should there should be no profit. There should be, you know, no return on investment. Otherwise, you're not doing it for the right reasons. Yeah. You don't have the right agenda. And actually, what we're what we're finding is the opposite to be true. You know, social mm-hmm. social enterprises, those who are running it with the rigor and and discipline and accountability of a business that has to provide returns or an investment that has to provide returns, they tend to come up with much better solutions mm-hmm. and solutions that last mm-hmm. in, in a longer term. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It, it makes me like, what have you learned? I mean, how do you tell that story? You know, you've taken something that is traditionally in the risk box. You're moving it into the opportunity box. You're trying to get people's attention. What have you learned about telling that story to get people's attention? There are... Mm-hmm. Sort of, I'm going through so many different examples in my head where I've been sitting in front of investors and, and talking to them about this this sort of idea. Again, saying we don't come to our investor community, for example, and say, "Look, this is a great investment opportunity. I think you should look at it right now," um, because that's already making an assumption that that investor is at you know, at that point <laughs> of being able to see opportunities where they wouldn't necessarily. Um, I think the story always has to start with, you know, what actually, what it, what is frustrating you the most, or what do you care about the most? It's a bit, it's a bit sort of back to that question of what gets you up in the morning, what drives you, because ultimately the reason we started working on this piece, it's not because, from my side anyway, I should caveat, it wasn't because, I, okay, I really want to do something in uh, that that serves humanitarian need. Right. There's there are a lot of challenges in the world that we could all be addressing. It wasn't sort of coming from that angle from me, from my colleagues, yes, and who run the humanitarian agenda. From my side, actually, it was just asking all of our investors, look, in absentia from your investment capital, from your your day to day operations, what do you personally care about? And what really surprised me and shocked me was how many of them came back with, I wish I could do something as it relates to this migration crisis at the time this was a few years ago right when the media and everything on television was was uh, talking about the numbers of people coming into europe at the time and in the us as well and and the number of people that actually just came and said i wish i could do something about this i wish i didn't feel so helpless and that was the conversation starter that then automatically gives you a bit of an opening to say well well why can't you do something what is it that makes you think that you cannot? And, and a lot of them will say, well, you know, philanthropy, I give money to certain organizations, to certain charities. And they say, well, what about your, your operational business or your operating company? What about your 
investment capital? What would you take for you to actually look at an investment in this space? And so, so it's a slow process. I think what you're sort of kind of coming to and one of my biggest learnings is how long it takes in many cases to get to the point. This is like, you know, you got to hang in for the marathon on something like this. You've got to have a load of patience. That's why, for example, my job now at the World Economic Forum versus my job in CoCheck, they're not that different when you actually look at it in the absolute terms, because they both require a heck of a lot of patience. <laughs> so it's sort of a consistent theme, but I would say that the amount of time that it takes and, and, you know, being prepared to be frustrated by the pace of change and being prepared to be frustrated by the excuses and, and things that come back that the short-term excuses that, oh, I can't look at this or I can't consider that. Um, but you can't give up on it because all of a sudden things will flip. It, it's actually almost amazing how my colleagues and I, we were really working hard to articulate this concept of humanitarian investing and just kept getting slammed and you know, doors on our faces, doors on our faces. And then all of a sudden, people got it. All of a sudden, almost, almost out of nowhere, right? Um, and that's been totally my experience with all of sustainable finance, right? It's, it's like nobody was at the party until suddenly everybody's at the party and the music is blasting. But for those many, many years, you think this is going to take a long time to influence people to understand it. Now the challenge is actually getting everyone to dance to the same beat. And that's going to take a lot longer. Well, that's, I mean, that's like any project or problem or, or enterprise, you know, you start off trying to get people's attention and getting people on board. And then all of a sudden your next challenge is to manage everybody that you've brought on board, manage the, yes. the conflicting goals and ideas and agenda, agendas and um, commitments of everybody that's on board. So quickly, let's just, let's look at everybody being on board. Just give me, it occurred to me while, while you were talking that we haven't gone into, you know, who are these people that you're talking to? Who is your, let's say, target market for these conversations? So it's a range. I mean, we're inherently multi-stakeholder just by definition of, of who we are as an organization. And I say we, I mean, I think with the organization I work with, um, we are quite a family, you know, both those who work within the forum, but also those who work with us externally as well. The value of, of what we're doing is the fact that we're not speaking to one specific audience or stakeholder group. So even though I sit predominantly on the investor side of things. So I spend a lot of my time talking to uh, the, the most influential uh, senior CEO and board member investors in the world, you know, institutional investors, private investors. But it doesn't really do much to just only talk to that group uh, at any one given point in time. I think the value is in bringing in uh, the world's leading CEOs of companies who there's a very specific relationship between companies and investors. Um, and as it relates to creating positive impact, that's a very special dialogue and specific conversation that needs to happen. So really it's the engagement between those perspectives. So we spend a lot of our time getting together, you know, leading CEOs from both sides of those coins. But then I think really interesting uh, voices that you have to, again, have in those conversations, which we spend a lot of our time doing as well, is bringing in and say leading regulators, governments uh, and financial regulators, those who actually have the ability to influence the capital markets, right, based on their role in that equation. And then also civil society, not forgetting you know, there are a huge number of organizations, NGOs and international organizations in the world 
that are trying to achieve uh, very positive ends, but they don't have access to these top CEOs and or top regulators. So in essence, that's what we're trying to accomplish. And that's who we work with is pulling together all these very senior level influencers, leaders in the world, but actually pulling them together under the auspices that look, we have a lot to learn from each other and work from each other, but we don't necessarily see eye to eye from the beginning. So it's, it's a, a complex process of trying to get everyone to understand and work together more collectively. Let's just go a little bit further into, into multi-stakeholder dialogue there. You know, trying to solve complex problems um, requires a multitude of voices and those voices are, have to be people that can do something about the problem at hand. Mm. And those mm. people, by their very nature, tend to be um, hard to get hold of. They tend to be mm-hmm. hard to capture and keep attention. Um, mm-hmm. And they tend to be hard to get in one place at the at the one time. Correct. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, that's your... <laughs> That's what you do on, on, a, on a daily basis. Is there anything that someone that's listening to this can learn about getting people to the table? Like how do we get the right people to the table, especially those that have very little time to give? Yeah. And I think that there's the figurative table and sort of the how do you get everybody on the same page versus actually how do you literally physically get everyone to the same table? <laughs> <laughs> Which, not via FaceTime I, or Skype. Yeah, not via FaceTime. Yeah, exactly. And you know, and in such a digital world, and we we focus on lunch, and I focus a lot on on you know this this concept of fourth industrial revolution and AI and tech and how does all, how does that influence decision making? But I can I can pretty safely say that nothing replaces eye to eye contact when it comes to trying to get everyone onto the same page. Um, there is something to be said for the fact that the the more senior the people that you're trying to get onto the same page, the more you actually need them in the room because you need everyone's undivided attention. You need them to be, I mean, I think that's essentially why the the world economic forum still exists in, in, in physical terms, right? I mean, we could be a completely digital platform at this stage based on what we do, but ultimately actually getting the world leaders into a room to look at each other and, uh, and, and try to find common ground, then that's not going anywhere as a mechanism for change, right? Um, the, the problem I see more so is that there are a multitude of convenings in the world, too many convenings in the world that are all trying to achieve the same ends, but in a very uncoordinated fashion. So I think we have to do a better job of, of realizing that if you're really going to get everyone to the same room, it better be good, right? It better be something that's going to move things forward. So what's the what's the hook? I mean, you would have to dangle something. And maybe you don't. I'm making it up. Maybe you don't have to dangle something in front of somebody to get them to, to come to the table. It would seem logical to me. Is it um, – do you paint a picture? Do you – do you use possible gain? Do you get someone else to invite them that they know? Is there a methodology of, of getting people to the table, either physically at the table or just generally to join a conversation? Yeah, to, to think to get the most most senior people, the most senior decision makers to come to the table, they have to see themselves in the problem statement and feel inextricably linked to the outcome. Right. It, it can't be an optional outcome, essentially. I think people are very happy to convene all over the world at to most points in time. But I think to get the really, really senior decision makers, that has to be 
a real sense of ownership of the outcome. And for a very long, long period of time, a lot of that incentive and that sort of shared outcome has, has been around the sustainability space, at least in our world, that that's definitely gotten people to come to the table. But, but now, to be honest, because it's become so ubiquitous to talk about sustainability and, and you know, climate change and things that haven't lost urgency by any stretch of the imagination. In fact, they've only gained an urgency. Um, but I think what now is bringing the most senior people to the table is to make it personal to these organizations and, and these people. I think governments sort of naturally feel something of a mandate uh, for their own people, but for CEOs, for investors, you know, the trick that we use now, it's not a trick to be honest with you, it's just fact, is, is really honing in on the materiality, the financial materiality of the global challenges that we're dealing with. So uh, that's actually a piece of work that I'm running now as well in the forum is, you know, what is the evolution of financial materiality of environmental, social, and governance factors in the world? How do you actually make that really personal to a company in terms of their valuation, right? Over the course of time, how do you make that really personal to investors who are, by all definitions, allocators of capital? And it becomes very personal to them when you start to say, well, look, if I'm allocating my, my money and my capital into areas that are no longer going to be viable due to environmental and social risks, then that's that's pretty real to me. So that's sort of what gets a lot of people into the, the, the decision makers into the room pretty quickly is, well, wait a minute, this just my, my you know, my actual long-term sustainability, my long-term potential is at stake here, not just people on the planet. I loved, I loved what you said there about, you know, putting them in the problem statement, you know, taking, taking the problem and, and making it their problem, not as a, you know, it would be great if, or please come and look at something that's important to me or to us or to the planet or to, but actually making it very specific and very real to their own agenda. Yeah, I mean, making it tangible. I think it, it's it's unfortunate to, to say this, but ultimately what I've noticed is that we're not, we can't get away with the easy problem statements anymore. I mean, climate change is, is something that we think about a lot, right? But it doesn't bring people to the table anymore because it's almost, it's a known known in some cases. I guess I can't say that. There are plenty of uh, pockets in the world where I guess it's still a debate, but but um, but the reality is that you know it's it, it doesn't it's not compelling anymore to say hey guys let's all come together and talk about climate change because that happens literally every minute of every day of every month of you know anywhere on the planet at this stage it's a it's a conversation we constantly have but we're not seeing action from it right so you have to go well beyond just that kind of a problem statement and say okay so. How is this personal and how are we going to take this forward? How are we actually going to do something? I'm glad, I'm glad you brought up climate change. I think that one of the things that has been on my mind, especially you know everything that's been happening recently um, with the Amazon, is that question, you know, what would it take? What would it take? And that actually, the, my inability to be able to answer that question was surprising to me because it's it's not like I don't care and it's not like I'm not actively engaged or learning. But the the lack, my lack of clarity on what action would actually make a difference there, like what tangible action can I take? Is that's the that's the gap for me just in my own personal actions. 
And I know that you've talked before about creating or building lighthouses, like easily identifiable targets where we can go, right, you want to you get to here, it's going to be this, 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 and this. Like that kind of forensic clarity is what gets stuff done. How do you, how do you come up with that when something is as complex as the issues that you're dealing with? Yeah, this is essentially, this is sort of the bread and butter of our days these days, right? Um, not just in my role, but even within the organization is, and you sort of mentioned this lighthouse concept, but personally, I think it's going to be incredibly difficult to get everybody onto the same ship pointing at a lighthouse, right? And, and I wonder, a lot of organizations, a lot of time, people spend time trying to get everybody on the same boat. I don't mind if the flotilla is a thousand boats, a million boats, but as long as they're all pointing towards that same lighthouse, that same horizon, uh, that's what we're gonna try to achieve for the next few years, right? And ultimately, what are we actually kind of trying to achieve in, in terms of transparency and accountability, right? For, for our actions, both companies, investors, what have you, because we're not ever, none, no one's gonna be marching to the exactly the same beat. And that's, that's a futile exercise in, in, to a degree, but actually showing what we're doing uh, within our, our sort of daily life and how it is either contributing to uh, the negative effects of climate change or positive uh, sort of evasive action of climate change. I think that's really just fundamental to how we should be operating as companies as investors as regulators all of this you know what are we actually doing where is the accountability and transparency there so we spent a lot of time in the last year focusing on probably one of the the gnarliest snarls if you will um I in that, that effort that, the gnarliest snarls <laughs> gnarliest snarl. i have no idea i don't know if that's a thing maybe i just created that but it is now that's what, that's how it feels in my soul is it's an earliest snarl um and that's around reporting you know sustainability reporting and dissemination of that information. And again, I approach that from the lens of an investor. If I'm an investor that has a certain amount of money to invest, I want to know in an apples to apples comparison, looking at different investment opportunities, how are they doing on factors that contribute to climate change? Right? But I want to know that comparably <laughs> and, and not have to make a, an uneducated guess there. So we started working on understanding what is the ecosystem for non-financial reporting. How does it relate to financial reporting? Should it be integrated? Should it not be integrated? Um, and it's unbelievable how complex that that whole system is, that ecosystem, because it, it, just so many agendas, so many, I don't mean that's an agenda necessarily in a, in a bad way, but it's just so many different points of influence and everyone looking at uh, the reporting ecosystem from a, a specific lens and not realizing that you know you got to zoom out and see it as the as the whole. If we're actually going to prevent the the worst effects of climate change, we need to understand how all companies in the world are contributing to or, or performing in terms of their not just their corporations but supply chain as well. We need to know where investors are investing. Are they investing in things that are inadvertently creating uh, a lot sort of more negative effects of climate change? Or are they not? There's just so much lack of clarity. We have a ton of data in the world. Don't get me wrong. I'm of the camp that we've got way more data than people actually really, really see. It's just that it's not comparable data. So until we actually understand and work on 
how are we reporting on different factors? Is that adding transparency to our operations from a corporate and investor and regulator standpoint? And if not, how do we fix that quickly? But, you know, I may retire on this issue because that's, it's just very complex. (laughs) (laughs) You've just got me thinking, when was, when was the last time or or have you ever had a moment in the day-to-day of what you're doing where you, you look at a project or you look at a campaign or you look at a conversation that you've had and you, you go, you know, oh my, oh my God, we're, I actually feel like we're moving the needle here. I can feel that we're making some kind of either systematic or tangible change. Well, the la- oh, there have been so many moments like that in the last, I would say, even two years, to be honest with you. It's a bit like I said earlier that for a long time there, it felt like there were just a, a couple people at the party and the news was, was sort of low and we were trying to, to convince everybody to come and join the party. But in the last few years, and you know, anybody who's been looking at the news and media, um, you just start to see a lot of new voices and influential voices talking about being responsible leaders and looking, thinking long-term. Right. This is like long term was something that you just never really saw in the media uh, as it relates to people and climate a couple of years ago. And suddenly you're starting to see global CEOs come together, put their name on something and say, we actually agree that we need to be better leaders and more sustainable leaders. And that's just been sort of overwhelming in one in one sense, because you realize, OK, people are starting to get it. Oh, shoot. Now it's time to actually get them to work collectively, like you said before. Like, oh no, they're all in the room, but everyone's running around like cats. How do we actually sort of help them move in the same direction? So it's overwhelming, but it's also incredibly inspiring when you start to see that everyone's starting to get it in their own way, right? But but I think that's actually what's been kind of inspiring to us as an organization is thinking, well, I think maybe, maybe what we've been doing for the last 50 years is starting to percolate, right? And starting to pop out. But yeah, but now the hard work begins, to be honest with you, just getting people to understand, getting them to the table, like you said earlier. Um, in some cases, that's hard for people. If the problem statement's not right, you're not going to get them there. But once they are at the table, then you better know what to do with them because that's an opportunity you don't want to squander. It's, um, there's two directions I want to go. I wanted to go into. I'm going to go. I'm going to this way. The you've said before that there's a difference as leaders. There's a difference between being um, responsive and responsible. Walk me through. Walk me through that definition. The the concept of being a responsible leader, and, and this is sort of my own sort of pure definition of this. The uh, the World Economic Forum actually has a very sort of fluid um, but still firm definition of what it is to be a responsible and responsible uh, leader. But from from our side, from my side, to be a responsible leader, uh, you really need to understand your impact as an individual, as a, a leader in your organization, all the different many, many points that connect to you. Um, you need to be aware. Like responsible is just fully awareness, right? How do you actually encapsulate your impact in the world through all the different channels that, that you actually control. Um, and then the responsive element, well, then what do you do with that information? You, you can't just 
know your impact, you know, have your snapshot of what you're doing and do nothing with it. If there are areas where you need to be much, much better in your performance, you need to go for that. That has to be a, a strong priority for you to actually improve on that side. Or if you're really doing well in certain areas, then that's fantastic. How do you actually help others to follow in those footsteps? But you have to sort of the awareness piece, but then actually the action piece. That's two coming together, and also realizing that responsive usually it means some form of collaboration as well. It's not an individual solo effort. Most influence, to be honest with you, at this stage is a team sport. No one organization is going to be able to do this by themselves. It is you know somebody makes a pass, and then that you know you get all the way up the field before you actually make the ultimate goal. But it's almost never just a a solo effort. Is there anything that you've learnt in your experiences about, you know, you've, you've got the cats in the room, as you said, and you also said that this isn't any kind of huge change, either at an organisational level or at a global level, is not one person's responsibility and it's not going to happen with just one person. Mm-hmm. Is there anything you've learnt once those cats are in the room about getting to a consensus or a yes or any or, or commitment, just getting some action out of the room. Again, it, it comes down to the making it so real for that organization individual. I mean, we're I think as humans, it's, it sort of sounds harsh to say this, but we're just incredibly myopic um, as as a a people, right? Um, so everything it has to come down to what do I understand, what do I get from this, and what do I contribute to this. And when you really get a room full of people that understand that what they can receive as well as what they contribute in making the pie bigger uh, is much better than the current status quo, then you'll get action very quickly. But I think a lot of people will make the mistake to say, well, let's focus on making the pie bigger for everybody and not trying to make it personal to an organization. And then you lose people ultimately, over the course of time, because they can commit to something in the short term that makes the pie bigger for everybody. But then when they start to see it moving against their own interests, then there's a possibility of moving so that's, backwards. That's doing your research, <laughs> right, figure, you know, figuring out exactly yeah. tangibly what's in it for everybody around that table. And, and you need, the, you need the, the, to really approach all angles or something. Again, when the cats are in the room, let them debate let them actually go through different angles of a question to really start to get a full picture because you want them to be, uh, it's very rare you could everybody enter a room and say, okay, yes, we agree on something. We've, we've all done our research independently and we think that this makes sense. Okay, let's sign something and go forward. You have to allow for that debate to make sure that you're, you know, popping the hood, if you will, on a couple issues that need to be discussed so that you're even more secure that, you know, the people in that room are even more sure that, okay, We've explored all angles. I want to just quickly talk about the fourth industrial revolution. I know that it's something that you're you're really passionate about in terms of the impact it's going to have on your space. Mm. It's just, you know, I, I hear this term a, a lot in, in my world, but again, let's go with a working definition. What is the fourth industrial revolution? So oof, most people ask me what were the first, second, and third um, uh, revolutions. And, you know, obviously we get to... You know, of industrial state and uh, computers and now we're kind of into the more so this digital ai uh, universe and the fact that it is fundamentally changing how we operate as a society um global society i can 
tell you that there are parts of the world that are still struggling to adapt to the first, second, and third industrial revolutions. So we're not equally distributed whatsoever uh, in terms of our uh, the impact of, of AI. But ultimately, it is changing how we how we educate, how we prepare future generations, uh, how we actually employ people today, how societies organize themselves. Uh, it's it's a, a seismic shift in terms of you know, the sort of human aspects of uh, of our society and actually how we work. So it's something that's really fascinating from the lens of let's say sustainability and comparability and, and transparency and accountability, all those things I was talking about earlier, because it essentially takes the onus of uh, our sustainability information, our data out of the hands of human interaction and ultimately puts it now in the hands of, of something that's far more, let's say scale oriented. So if you actually start to integrate the technology AI into this whole ESG debate and sustainable investing, you're taking it out of the you know, hypothetical of, of human data capture and actually bringing it to, let's say, you know, applying it across the entire digital universe and actually getting potentially more rich data and much more scaled data. I loved a quote that I had here from you. The velocity, scope or systems impact of the fourth industrial revolution has no historical precedent, which I think is a really important point to make from an optimism standpoint. And as we were saying, you know, from taking things out of the fear, scarcity bucket, you know, this is it's all going to hell in a handbasket, into the, the opportunity bucket, which is, you know, we've never had access to these tools before. We've never had access to this type of network before we've never had access to the level of collaboration that's happening before, you know, let's, let's look at that and, and what could possibly happen and how quickly it could happen if we could focus it all together. And, and just having, having that data and that analytical ability to, I think that to me is sort of the, I mean, the fourth industrial revolution applies across you know, every industry, every region, what have you. This, it's just a really interesting concept that our chairman came up with many years ago, but but as it relates to the sustainability space, to me, it's just the power of data, the information that we can get from from this flip to more of an AI-enabled uh, approach is completely unprecedented. It'll give us a lot of scary information that we didn't actually know previously. Sometimes, you know, ignorance was bliss back in the day. We don't have that luxury anymore. Now we'll really be able to see how we're doing and what we're doing. But then, then you know, it doesn't fix it. It doesn't fix the problem for us. It gives us data, it gives us information. And then ultimately it's still up to, at least for the short term, up to humans to decide, well, how are we going to start to fix that? And as you've said before, if you look at some of the world's largest problems, it's going to be the private, the private sector that's, yeah. that's going to be fixing these problems, not so much the, the public sector. Yeah, I mean, it, it's again, it's, it's a choreographed dance. There is a fundamental role for the public sector in all things that relate to, especially regions and people, what have you, and planet. There, there are baked in mandates uh, on the public sector side, and, and there's been a lot of great leadership. But what you'll see in the last 
five, 10 years is just that the private sector has really woken up to the role of business and investment in creating a more positive world. It just wasn't really a conversation in our parents' generation, right? Just didn't really happen. Now it's really, the onus is really starting to hit the private sector saying, well, wait a minute, we have a lot of influence in the world. Talking about influence, you know, private sector has a ton of influence on how things operate, how people behave and starting to feel that responsibility. And especially the group that we work with on a regular basis, they really feel that responsibility now to say, okay, well, this is not, we can't just leave this in the hands of public sector. It's not fair to the public sector for one to put everything into their lap, but it's also, you know, really where, where's the most influence in the world coming from these days? It just happens to be one of those moments where in, when the public sector is faltering in many respects, a lot of trust is going into the private sector. So how do you then harness that trust and do something positive with it? And also at a, at a practical level, you know, the, the public sector doesn't have access to the infrastructure, the, the algorithms, the, the speed, the resources, the, mm-hmm. the attention mm-hmm. that the private sector has access to. And those are all the levers that need to be pulled. Mm-hmm. Now, you, yeah. I'm just I'm curious because I know you love, you know, you, you have a soft spot for tech. Is there any tech that you're watching right now that's really exciting you in your own space? I know you've mentioned blockchain before and the, the impact of blockchain in your space. I, I watch it with great interest, almost sort of sitting there, I, I, having almost no expertise in blockchain whatsoever. I have to always be very transparent about that. I have a lot of colleagues who are leading in this space and a lot of friends who are leading in this space. So it's almost like me watching with popcorn uh, as this whole thing develops. I think you and 99.9% of the population. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, maybe, yeah. I, mean, I always feel like I sort of need a refresher on the definition of what's happening in blockchain at the moment too. So if if, if anyone listening feels like they don't get it, don't worry. You're, you know, I, I'm surrounded by it all the time and I still need refreshers constantly. Um, but I, I think what's really fascinating is to see that even if um, blockchain is sort of inherently flawed in some respects or will prove to be inherently flawed in some respects. The fact that we have even gotten to a point in our society where blockchain even exists and has opens up completely different avenues and new doors for how we, uh, how we interact and how we track and how we, again, create that transparency and that trust, that is a huge momentous movement in, in our society, right? So I watch it as not necessarily the be all and end all of blockchain is going to take over the world and we're all going to be part of this, but like, wow, can you just imagine that something like this did not exist? I mean, I, I sort of imagine myself as a kid way before anything like this existed and how short a period of time it took to actually develop and deliver something that is quite fundamentally changing the way we work and the way we live. That's fascinating. So that's sort of a, a, a a mega trend, if you will, <laughs> that I keep an eye on. And then how can it actually work for us and, and make us, you know, at the end of the day, still more accountable and transparent about how we operate. And so it's it's the it's the trust accountability piece in terms of just the practical application for blockchain for you, again, for most of us who are really only just trying to get a small idea of what blockchain is and what it potential could be. Mm-hmm. How could it impact mm-hmm. your world? Like what what's the practical kind of layman's terms application? Well, if if we actually start seeing very large scale, let's say, just data coming from transactions, coming from performance, if you actually can overlay reporting of sustainability factors 
through blockchain as well. Um, but again, just more transactions that are that are occurring that relate to people and planets again. And it just gives us such a, a clearer picture than we have today on you know, what industries, for example, or what regions are leading in in sort of the innovation space for, for sustainable products and services and, and you know, lifestyles, what have you. And, and where do we actually need to focus our attention because there are laggards, right? It gives us just, again, sort of more clear data on it, again, if applied well, on where actually global multi-stakeholder organizations like ours need to be focusing our attention. I'm going to come to a close just as my second to last question. And it's something that that I read that you had you had said and it made me it made me really curious. You, you said that no one ever said that mission driven work should be easy. We just need to be ready to go there no matter what. And mm-hmm. it's the, you know the the question or my question for that would be you know go go where where do we need to be prepared to go? Yeah, I <laughs> I think when I said that as well. Edge of our sanity (laughs) to the... Yeah, yeah. It's a a very deep personal there, if that makes sense, right? You have to be ready to go there as an individual, meaning it can be a very dark place. It's very frustrating. Like I said earlier about the pace of change, you just, you have to live in it and own it and realize that you've decided to take on just the world's biggest challenges, right? And regardless, even if you sort of narrow down and you decide this is the one aspect that I really care about and and I really want to focus in on this, these are intractable problems that we're dealing with, right? And to go there means you just have to be ready to to weather the really, the days when you really think I'm not doing anything here. I'm not, I'm not going to be successful. I'm not strong enough. I'm not influential enough. I'm not um, smart enough, you know, whatever the negative talk that you want to give yourself, you have to be willing to ride that wave to then come out on the other side to say, okay, maybe I'm making a difference here and maybe we're actually getting somewhere. And I can honestly tell you from the last few years where suddenly you started to see people and hear people talking in ways that you've been thinking and talking, you know, for many, many years as well with your colleagues, you, there is a horizon, right? There is sort of the blue sky at the end of, of that tunnel. So by going there, you just have to be ready to go through the full spectrum of human emotions and trust that actually what you're doing is going to create an impact. If you could give... If there's anyone listening to this podcast that feels like they they are tempted to take on an intractable problem or that knows the problem or the question that they want to answer or solve but has no idea to get how to get the right people to the table and if, even if they could what action to ask them to take what's what's the one piece of advice that you would give them well, I'd say you're not alone <laughs> in not knowing all the answers to anything. Almost nobody does. Um, yeah, what is the, what is the best advice to actually get clarity on on the purpose and the key question? 
in, in many respects, at least from the experience that I've had, you're never going to get it right the first time, even in sort of how you, you know, the, the change that you want to, to see in the world, it'll evolve over time. Everything is evolving all the time. And to the best of your abilities, when you find something that drives you that you're really passionate about, first of all, recognize that you're one of the very few lucky people in the world that has found something that's really drives them and is passionate. I always took it for granted that everyone has a passion for it, but it's actually not true. So first of all, you know, congratulations, that's fantastic. Um, to have, be, have something you're passionate about and then realize that from there, at that point onwards, it's almost like a relationship, right? The more you care about something, the more you're afraid to lose or not achieve that goal. So you just have to be ready to iterate and to evolve and bring everybody to the table to realize that, oh, okay, maybe, maybe I need to do it slightly differently next time. But that's all part of the process. Nobody gets it right. You know, they, what's the, the old adage that, you know, perfect is the enemy of good. You just have to get going. You just have to start moving because this paralysis of waiting for perfect uh, and waiting for exact clarity on what, how you're going to approach something, it doesn't usually actually get you anywhere. Progress over perfect. Yeah. And pay attention to what everyone else in the world is doing, at least in terms of high levels. That's my other, my last piece of, or addendum to that piece of advice, because I see a lot of repetition in the world, a lot of reinventing wheels and a lot of passion that's, that's sort of singularly focused. Please, 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 if there's anything I have to say, stop competing to save the world. Just look at the collective, look at what's happening out there and how can you add to that puzzle? How can you add to that in a constructive way? Final question. If I could give you a stage somehow and I gave you a microphone and in front of you I could put every single person that you want to influence, which in your world are some pretty significant players, what's the, if I gave you five minutes, what's the one thing that you would want them to know? Again, I sort of mentioned humans are just so myopic by nature and we're fighting against a pretty ingrained uphill battle to try to get the world to collaborate. But we have to recognize that no one organization or government or individual is going to be able to solve these challenges alone. But in a sense, we still act as if we alone have the secret sauce to save the world. And it's a bit maddening. <laughs> from, it's one of those things that makes me cringe uh, on a regular basis is the fact that collaboration is very, very, very hard, especially with deadlines. And the world is giving us some pretty clear deadlines as of late. So anyone who wants to claim victory is going to have to get used to the idea of having their name in small print alongside a lot of other names, because that's what it's going to take. Thank you so much for, for the time and, and for distilling what has been from coach at counter to, you know, m moving the needle at a global scale, quite a, quite a journey. So Thank you for your time. I really appreciate it. Thank you. Thanks, Julie. It's been a pleasure. Thanks so much for listening. We really hope you enjoyed this episode and found tons and tons of useful ideas and insights for growing your own influence. Now, for those of you who want to take the next step in your influence journey, if you want to take everything you have learned today and just ramp it up a notch, or you just want to learn more about the power of thought leadership when it comes to growing a business, an enterprise, or spreading an idea, there is now also a research paper 
that you can download from my website, juliemasters.com. Pop in your email address. It is free. We will not spam you. But it is jam-packed, full of all the ideas, tools, and case studies that I have come across in 10 years of doing this work. It's called the Influencer Code. It's not long, but it is full of value. So download it, keep it, share it, juice it for all it is worth. I hope that it makes a massive difference in your career or business. Thank you always to our producer, co-founder, and the main brain, I'm not joking, behind the Inside Influence podcast, Lauren Kelly. In the words of Jerry Maguire, you complete me. And if you did enjoy the show, then we would love you to share this podcast and leave us a review on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, whatever your platform of choice happens to be. And don't forget to subscribe to make sure that you never miss an interview.